Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. to a new season of The Crux and our 59th episode, Gary. What do you wow. think of that? Yeah. Uh, I, I think doing, we, by the way? I'm doing well. I, you know, you and I are post-COVID, you know, I don't know if, you know, everyone listening knows, but I'm just happy, Mike, to be talking to you, you know, so. You know, <laughs> this has been an interesting ride. So Gary had COVID and, and, and survived and Clearly, it, it, it hit him hard. I got twice vaccinated back in, in, in May, but then had the Delta variant hit me up in Canada during the summer. So it's good to see you. It's good yeah. to see, see that you're you're healthy and, and, and kicking and, and sassy as ever. Absolutely. <laughs> Look, at, at, at 61 years old, Mike, you know, I'm just happy to be vertical still, right? So, so and happy to be back on the crux. I really enjoy these conversations with you. And and by the way, back again for another semester is my graduate assistant from Boston University, Christopher Caddick. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hey, guys. You know, excited to be back as well. Uh, looking forward to another great season. Terrific. Yeah. And, and, and thanks for making us sound better than we really are in real life. So we appreciate that. <laughs> And I'm looking forward, Gary, to to our discussion today with our guest, Reeves Weidman. As you know, he's a feature writer with New York Magazine and the author of a book that we'll talk a lot about, Billion Dollar Loser, The Epic Rise and Spectacular Fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. It should be interesting and enlightening. Looking forward to his perspective on all this as well as perhaps other larger than life and sometimes fake it till you make it <laughs> entrepreneurs. But before we get there, I've got a few news items I'd love to bend your ear on. The first one involves yet another book from a former White House individual. In this case, it's Stephanie Grisham. Right. The book is I'll Take Your Questions Now, What I Saw at the Trump White House. Now, Gary, you were a press secretary a political figure. What I want to know is, did your boss ever engage you in conversations <laughs> about sexual habits and what someone's sexual organs actually looked like? You know, I was in New York politics and things were pretty rough and tumble, Mike, but we never, <laughs> we never <laughs> went this low <laughs> that I can remember. This is, of course, in response to Stormy Daniels, right? This is the no, whole no, Stormy No, no, it's not. So, so, so apparently this is what happened to President Trump's third press secretary, Stephanie Grisham, that he was asking her about her right. genitals. Wow. So well, you know, well, listen. Anybody, I've never had anybody, just for the record, I, I've never had a boss. I've never had anybody in the workplace no. get to a salacious point like that. So. Well, you know, and, and Mike, I look at this book and it, even its title, Press Secretary, you know, now, now I'll take your question or I'll take your questions now. She never took questions, well, Stephanie yeah, Grisham. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. <laughs> you know, you know, to me, it's more than ironic, you know, on two levels. One, Stephanie Grisham, to your point, served as Trump's press secretary between July 2019 and April 2020. 
and then never held a White House press briefing. So she never literally entertained any questions while she was in the job. Now for her, that may have been a good thing, right? Because if you remember, you know, her predecessors and her successor, so Sean Spicer, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and then on the back, Kaylee McEnany. McEnany, uh, yeah. Lampooned by the late night night comics, by the, the troop on Saturday Night Live and NBC. But the second point, too, is that Stephanie Grisham was one of the longest serving members. She was a member of the Trump transition team immediately after the election in 2016. And she worked for the First Lady when she was not working for Donald Trump himself. She ultimately did come from the administration until right after the insurrection of the Capitol on January 6th. So while she was in the administration, she never seemingly questioned anything that was happening in the administration itself. Yeah, and this is, you know, we've seen a number of these books, Mike, now. I mean, it's hard to even keep track of these former members of the administration, either writing books or providing quotes for other books. You know, to me, the question obviously is, where were you when all of this was happening? And if you're so concerned about it, and is this more about rather than historical accuracy of what really happened, rebuilding personal brand. Yeah, yeah. And, and what's your bet here? Oh, personal brand. <laughs> you know, it's just, <laughs> it's really remarkable. And, and why? You know, yeah. it's, it's a book that, is there anything in this book, and I've read the excerpts, I haven't read the book, so I'll admit that. Is there anything here, maybe the details, more details, mm-hmm. that surprises us about the president? Right. Or is it nothing surprises us about this president? Right. And and so therefore, what was what's the point of the book? And 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 it's certainly not a, a revelatory book. It's a book about personal brand. Yeah. You know, there's another element here that's kind of interesting to me. I, I mean, I, my, my bet is she, she she wrote the book because you know she got an advance or she knew she was going to make X amount of money off of the book. And, and, and maybe there's challenges with finding other work. But what should we think in general about tell-all books from communications professionals? Mm. Now, after all, isn't there kind of, <laughs> I mean, I always had the sense there was a little bit of an unwritten code that you never ran out of your client, right? Yeah. And, and look, I'm with you on that. I just, you're, you're as a communications professional, you are as close as anyone to the information that's going on in the company. Not that there's anything to hide, but you see people, CEOs, CFOs, you see everyone in good times and in bad Mm -hmm. and, and they're human. They're not perfect. And, and you just, by virtue of your position, you have access to that kind of observation of people. I I don't, so I don't believe in tell all books by communications professionals. And to my point, if things were so bad, Mm -hmm. if that kind of thing was going on and I was in the White House, I'd walk out, right? You'd walk walk out, so. Exactly, I've had clients that I had to walk away from. Correct, yeah. And, and, and I think you need to have sort of an ethical backbone yourself. Just play it all out and write a book after everything has happened. And that book not necessarily being all that enlightening other than some salacious exactly. details. I, I don't see it. So I want to turn our attention to yet another book that's in the news and even bigger in the news is this book entitled Peril by Washington Post journalists Bob Woodward and Robert Costa. 
it's created quite a stir in Washington for what it says about the actions taken by the head of the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Army General Mark Milley, in order to essentially save the country from what President Trump might do as the commander in chief at the time of the Capitol Hill, Capitol Hill insurrection. He took steps at the Pentagon to safeguard things. And then just this week, he was up on the Hill testifying to Congress about the Afghanistan evacuation and found himself instead being attacked by pro-Trump Republicans violating the chain of command and denigrating the former president, all due to what he had apparently confirmed to Woodward and Costa about putting in place these controls at the Pentagon, which make it more difficult for President Trump to wage a war against another country in the waning days of his administration. Keep in mind, Milley's a four-star general. He is the person who says grace over the military reports to the president and the secretary of defense. And, you know, it's uh, also, I should add that during this time, right after the insurrection, it was also reported in the book that he had reached out to his counterpart within the People's Republic of China at the time to assuage any concerns that Trump might do something that might bring the two countries into conflict. Now, if you're a Democrat or perhaps even an independent with respect for the rule of law, you might think of Milley as a hero. And, and, and Milley has known controversy before. He had been criticized, you might recall, back in the summer of 2020, Gary, when he stood at President Trump's side after troops cleared protesters from Lafayette Square across the White House. Right. could do this photo op holding a Bible in front of uh, St. John's Episcopal Church. And Milley, shortly thereafter, had apologized and said that the military has to remain apolitical. A few questions. One, in talking with Woodward and Costa after the events of January 6th to confirm what he had done to put safeguards in place, did General Milley violate that code of being apolitical or was he serving a larger cause or, or even history? You know, Mike, it's, it's an interesting study in how Washington works, right? And how the press works in Washington, too. So as this book, Peril, was being released, this little nugget came out, right? right? That, that Milley had called his counterpart in China and said, you know, we're not going to attack you. And so that got all the headlines and it gave rise to this question, was Milley, you know, operating outside his lane? And as it turned out, once he testified, he was actually ordered to make that call mm -hmm. by appointees, or whoever the acting defense secretary was at the yep. time. I can't think yep. of the name. And so, so that part of the story has now been perpetuated by Republicans mm -hmm. as a way to hurt Biden and, and, and Milley, but he was actually following orders within his, his chain of command. Yeah, uh, civilian too this week in the in the hearing. I, I think it's just literally yesterday, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney actually criticized her fellow Republicans, calling them despicable for taking the general to task, underscoring that he simply was all about protecting the country. And to your point, he was following kind of his chain of command. 
He right. was dealing with the defense secretary, and he was literally dealing with the Speaker of the House as well. So what should we read into all of this relative maybe to the politics of the Republican Party? Or, or, or is there something to be gleaned here about you know, how our government should or should not communicate in a crisis? Yeah, well, you know, I w- as a political am- amateur political commentator, I would say, you know, I've been a lifelong Republican that nothing is too far or you can't go low enough. And even criticizing the military, in this case, the really top commander of of the American military, other than the president, even when the facts aren't convenient to the point you're making, right? That you, I, I agree with Cheney. It's this guy, Milley, was doing what he was told. He was doing something that helped it seemingly uh, people thought it would be something that would pr- create stability with another world power. I, I do have a, I, I do have some, you know, with him talking as much as he has to journalists and authors and that kind of thing. There is a game in Washington, and I'm not saying Millie mm-hmm. is part of this. Of, you know, these relationships you have behind the scenes with journalists to make sure that your point of view and your reputation, your image is protected. I don't know that's the case with Millie. Yeah. But it certainly is part of the game. It is certainly a a big part of the game. And if I were, I don't know what advantage, national security advantage America achieved by his talking to Costa and, Mm -hmm. and, and Woodward, even though I'm a big believer in access. So, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's it's like I believe he did the right thing, and then you've got that whole layer of questioning around, you know, what did he say? When did he say it? And what were the intentions? Exactly. And there's a part of me too that wants certain things that are historical and important to be reported too. So yes, I, I find myself. In, in a lot of conflict over this. Yeah. I think it's one of the challenges that will continue to persist both in political life and in journalism. Yeah, absolutely. But I, but I think it's important to point out. Uh, now, another thing that caught my eye over this past week is there has been a movement in Europe by uh, market regulators, uh, securities regulators, to start questioning actual word usage, particularly in the ESG space. And, 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 you know, companies across the globe pick up buzzwords faster than magnets pick up nails, you know. (laughs) And when it comes to words used in the field of of ESG, environment, you know, social and governance, there have been a proliferation of words that in and of themselves don't mean a lot. And companies sometimes use these buzzwords to signal positive intentions. But unfortunately, they're often less concrete and mean different things to different people, which is why these European regulators and some investment houses and analysts are beginning to weigh in and make noise that they are not going to tolerate some of the proliferation of buzzwords when it comes to corporate disclosures around environmental, social and and, and governance issues. The word, interestingly, that they are currently troubled by is ESG integrated. I assume companies that use this intend to indicate they are more than motivated by ESG goals, but sometimes it is difficult to discern, you know, what exactly are the goals, how these organizations are holding themselves accountable for the goal, 
and what does it mean to the materiality of these businesses long-term. Mm -hmm. But Allianz Global Investors and DWS Group, which is a unit of Deutsche Bank, announced this past week that they will no longer use the term, accept the term from, from companies. The global director uh, of, of sustainability for Morningstar told Bloomberg this week, if you claim to do ESG integration, that means nothing. So Gary, a lot of this is being promoted by the new, prompted by the new European disclosure rules. They're intended to in turn give us more transparency. Essentially, you know, they're saying it's not enough to say you are green. They want you to be clear about how green and clear about what you have actually done and achieved. Are the steps taken by Allianz, by Deutsche Bank, are these the right moves? And do we need clearer language to avoid greenwashing? Well, look, we always need clearer language around these emerging topics. So, uh, but I would say, you know, it's the old page adage, Mike, prove it with action. Right. Uh, you know, is the solution to all of this and so, yes, and look, ESG is a relatively new phrase that has emerged over the past few years to replace uh, corporate social responsibility. So I, I think it's more, it's more clear or clearer than corporate social responsibility, which sounds like a hobby. So overall, we're moving in the right direction. But companies just need to say what they're doing <laughs> in environment, society, and you know, government policy. They need to be clear about what they've done, what they aspire to do, what they didn't achieve. Yeah. I, I think, Mike, you would get, companies would get so much credit for saying, for example, you know, we announced this we, in, in light of George Floyd, this big program that we wanted to do, billions of dollars around whatever topic related to racial mm -hmm. equity, but we haven't gotten there yet. It's been tougher than we thought. Here are the things that we ran into, but we're still determined to reach the goal. That's right. I think you get more credit for that than, you know, telling reporters and others to talk to the hand. So language is important. Mm -hmm. One of the things, by the way, in the environmental movement over the years, having, you know, been through eco-imagination, this is something the old CEO, Jeff Immelt has said, I, I do think this is true about language. In the environmental movement, it got kind of precious. You know, this, it, 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 it got, it wasn't hard enough about the choices that we needed to make and how hard environmental reducing your carbon emissions, for example, is, but uh, prove it with action. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And maybe it's the, it's me through the years hearing math teachers, let me show your work. <laughs> right. That's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. You know, that at, at, at the end of the day, you can talk about being values-based. You can talk about being customer-driven. You can talk about even, you know, having an aggressive approach to ESG. But I'm a little bit like, you know, the bumper sticker or the theme for the state of Missouri. You got to show me. Uh, <laughs> you got to tell the story. And to your uh, earlier point, I think it's also true. You and I have both seen companies that have made very public goals of, around different things, whether it's diversity, equity, inclusion, whether it's environmental targets, whether it's a host of, of various measures that seemingly over time could have an impact on the company's materiality. But then they either don't show their work, don't show how things have progressed, or worse yet, they move the fences in. They change, yeah. they change the goal. <laughs> and, and so I'm right with you. 
The last thing I want to bring up is, is one thing that kind of disturbed me. I, when I lived in New York, I <laughs> love going to Broadway plays. Yeah. And, and, you know, this past Saturday, they gave out the Tony Awards and for best plays and, and musicals and lots of different honors in between. But what, what troubled me, Gary, is that normally there are like five nominees for each category. And because of all the creative talent that's in New York and across the country and across the world, people even usually come up with lists of disappointments. You know, yeah, exactly. Of musicals that should have been nominated, right? Fast forward to the pandemic. Because fewer plays were actually produced or could actually be seen or attended, not all categories were filled with nomination. So again, that's because Broadway was shut down from March 12, exactly. 2020 until September of this year. So literally for best musical, best revival of a play and other categories, there were only three nominees. So Gary, if, 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 if we had simply produce the crux of the story, the musical, we could have been nominated. Absolutely. I, I, and I think, by the way, a lot of people tell me Hugh Jackman looks just like me and that he could have played me in the musical. No, no. Listen to me. There's a reason why we don't show our faces in the show. Exactly. Uh, but, 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 you, but, you know, know, in fairness, the awards, you know, are intended to honor plays it came out towards the back end of 2019 and the first of, of 2020. And normally the Tony Awards, they have their ceremony in June. But I just found it odd. You know, should we have had the Tony Awards at all or should Broadway have waited until the summer of 2022? Yeah, I, I think you wait. Yeah, I think you wait. You know, it, it extend the, the time frame uh, seems, seems right to me. I just care, Mike, if I want Bruce Springsteen to win another Tony, you know, and I didn't see him on the list. I know he won one last year, but the guy, you know, single-handedly kept Broadway or he was part of the reopening, I think. Yeah. But, well, uh, see, I, I actually think that's the motivation. The motivation yeah. is that they reopened, you know, September of this year. And so this became a way to reawaken people to the fact it was a marketing ploy in some respects that, you know, we're back in business at Broadway. You can come see a show. You can come see a play. So, so, so from that standpoint, maybe it was the right thing. But anyway, it, I thought yeah. it was fun. I wanted to get in the crux of the story, the musical. That's really Oh, cool. I, think, I think so. And I think for Chris, my great GA, I think Brad Pitt. I don't know if Brad Pitt can sing, but, you know, that might be a, you know, a good casting. There you go. Well, now let's go to our interview with Reeves. Our guest on the crux for episode 59 is, is Reeves Weideman, a features writer for New York Magazine and author of Billion Dollar Loser, The Epic Rise and Spectacular Fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. And we're going to discuss the book and Reeves' coverage of WeWork over the years and really try to get his perspective on this era of larger than life and what seems like increasingly fake it until you make it entrepreneurs that we're seeing in business today. Just a little bit about the book, The Times of London, 
called it the best business book of 2020. The Times gave a, a glowing review of the book, writing it's a satisfying TikTok of the companies, meaning we work, rapid rise and crash, culminating in its disastrous IPO in 2019 and Newman's ouster. The reason I want to talk about it, and, and Reeves, Reeves was just mentioning one of the reasons he wrote the book is that hopefully there's some lessons in it for people who are in business or going into business. But man, today's landscape of founders and entrepreneurs seems kind of different than it was back in the 80s when we had Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Those folks built lasting platforms and, and even were respected even after their CEO tenures ended. But fast forward to today, and we have a lot of new profile, high profile entrepreneurs that apart from the companies they founded have larger than life platforms as near celebrities. And you can't even pick up the newspaper or read anything on a day-to-day -day basis now when you don't see something about the travails of even successful entrepreneurs like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, or unsuccessful entrepreneurs like Elizabeth Holmes. Now, Ozzy, this U.S. media company mm -hmm. I've been reading about over the past few days, and of course, Adam Newman of WeWork. So uh, let's get to our guest. Welcome to The Crux, Reeves. Thanks for having me, Gary. So let, let me start by saying like, wow, <laughs> your book and your central character uh, in it read more like a work of fiction than a biography. Maybe we can start just by summarizing, if you could, for our listeners, the story of We Work, as you say, its rise in spectacular fall, and then a little bit about who Adam Newman is. Sure. Well, well, thank you so much for having me, and 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 uh, you know, I'm I'm glad the book resonated in that way because I think what interested me was the the people in in this story and the decisions they made and and why they did and 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 interest in that as as much as as this company and and when you talk about WeWork and you talk about Adam Newman, it's really impossible to separate the two of them. Adam was a serial entrepreneur um, in his 20s in New York, started a bunch of different companies. They've become kind of laughable in hindsight. One of them was a baby clothes company with knee pads. Uh, and another was a, 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 a women's heels company. They, they were sort of all over the map. And, and eventually in, in the late 2000s, he, along with a, a, a guy he met in New York, Miguel McKelvey, came up with this idea that wasn't necessarily a, a new idea, but they put a, a new spin on it of, of basically subleasing office space, taking out a, a lease in a building on a big space, cutting it up into tiny cubes and leasing those out to people. And, and this was, you know, the, the, that moment was right in the wake of the financial crisis. And, and so this was a period when a few things are happening. One, people had lost a lot of trust in, in big companies, and, and that was no longer sort of the way that people saw as the path mm -hmm. forward. They saw entrepreneurship and starting a business, which is what Adam was doing and, and was also what they were trying to allow other people to do. They were right, going to right. be the real estate provider for those those companies. This was a pretty good idea. People liked it. Yes. It grew incredibly fast. And 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 I'm fast forwarding a lot, but it get to 2019. And, and the reason we at New York Magazine were interested was suddenly there were WeWorks everywhere in, right. in New York City. We we had an office in, in downtown Manhattan and there were 
seemingly overnight, there were half a dozen within a few blocks of us. And so, so the company had clearly, clearly found something that people wanted. Adam was this insanely charismatic figurehead leader of, of the company, both internally and, and externally. And, and that's key to, to what sort of got the company to that point, raising billions and billions of dollars to, to fuel this growth over, over a decade and eventually led the company up to its, its moment of attempting to go public the first right. time. And, and I think in a lot of ways, a lot of the good parts of Adam that, that helped the company grow that quickly were also some of the things that, that ultimately spelled doom for the company when it and tried at, to go public. At one point, Reeves just had like a $40 billion value. Is that right? Am I? 47. 47, um, right? Yep. Yeah, uh, the valuation had had gone crazy, and this was, you know, at one point WeWork was the the second largest, had the second highest valuation of any private company in the United States. And the what was so strange about this is, again, the idea of subleasing office space wasn't new. What WeWork brought to it was their spaces were cool. They were trying to build sort of a community out of their spaces, and and I think you know we we can laugh at that, and I, I think. It clearly, in hindsight, that coolness didn't didn't warrant a forty seven billion dollar valuation. But there was something different. But it wasn't a wholly different business than businesses that had come before. And and one of the 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 biggest one is a company was called Regis. It's now called right. IWG. They're all over the world. They do this business and have for a couple decades. They are the the largest player, more spaces than WeWork has. And they were worth $3 billion. And right. so clearly something had become disconnected in, in the valuation of WeWork and, and what it was the company actually did. Well, don't over or underestimate the coolness. I can remember back in 2019 having business in New York mm-hmm. and you know saying, well, I'm just going to go to a WeWork space, mm-hmm. you know, trying desperately to be cool as an older <laughs> guy, right? So sure. what happened? What happened, Reeves? What's the... They went to IPO and it was calamitous, right? I mean, or they tried to go to IPO. Yeah, I think a, a few things happened. They, in, in August of 2019, they finally released their, the company's S1, which is the right. document you, you file with the SEC when you're, you're about to go public. And, you know, for years, WeWork had, the narrative around the company had been generally positive. It, it, it was a disruptor. It was cool. It was, it had this guy at the, at, at the head of it who seemed like kind of a visionary figure. And certainly investors and other people talked about him in, in that way. And so there were critiques of the company. There were questions about the company, but by and large, it had been, it had been all, all heading upward. And, and a, a few things happened when, when they released their paperwork that, that I, we released their S1 that I think really turned that narrative around. One of them was for, for a decade, people in the real estate industry had, had wondered, had assumed that mm-hmm. something about WeWork's business was different. They must be doing something different than, than the way I'm doing it. They must be making more money somehow. Otherwise, why would they be raising so much money? Why would they be worth so much money? And then once people got a look at the financials that WeWork suddenly had to make public, it just became clear the business was was essentially the same. They had the same cost, mm-hmm. they had the same expenses, they were bringing in the same kind of revenue as anyone else. And so, so that was sort of one, I guess, way in which the the 
facade sort, sort of started to fall. And then I think WeWork did, and, and for our purposes here, they lost complete control of the public narrative around around the company. And I think yes. the the there were there were too many things for them to to fight back on. The the fact of how much money they were losing was one. Uh, another part was how weird so much about the company was. Suddenly the public was learning about Adam Newman. They were learning about the mm-hmm. fact that he had started an elementary school and he was really into surfing. And then eventually they learned he was really into marijuana and, and all these things one after the other on top of the, the sort of last part being how much control he had over the company. And there were some very real concerns people had about the governance of WeWork and the fact that there were clauses in there that said Adam's wife would be among the people who would choose his successor that he was maintaining additional control over the company through his voting shares. So I think it's, it's, it's hard to pinpoint one thing. And I I don't think it's, I don't think there was one thing. I think there were just this, this conglomeration of different factors that just became too much for the company to overcome. If it had been, if they'd just been losing a lot of money or, or Adam was just a kind of strange guy. Eccentric um, guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You might've been able to overcome both, but, but, it combined all of it made it made it too difficult and and you know i <laughs> i've read a lot about i read your book of course was there anything that you uncovered i mean eccentric and controlling you know are maybe understatements mm-hmm. uh, anything you, you when you were doing your research where you said wow this just cannot be true plenty of things i i think in this this you know the 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 one that jumps to mind and and this i think gets to just how much the the Newmans began to see WeWork as or, or operated WeWork as if it was a family business, and and this is a you know this is a common problem for for startup founders. Eventually, your company becomes so big that it's no longer just you and your buddies work you know working your whole lives on this. That you've got lots of people and and responsibilities, and and that's a difficult transition for anyone. But WeWork had started this elementary school, and this is a story more about Adam's wife, who who is a is a you know, an important figure in the story of WeWork. They had started an elementary school, and the Newmans' the eldest daughter was was in the rock band in the in the elementary school. She was the lead singer. The Newmans decided to spend a a few months living in in the West Coast in in San Francisco, and brought they actually flew a few of the teachers out. To, to privately educate their kids and brought them away from the school. When they came back, the rock band had a new singer. She was a, a, a little girl who'd been kind of struggling in school. A teacher had thought maybe this was a good place for her. Yeah. And, and she was thriving suddenly. The Newmans came back and Rebecca Newman saw this was happening and said, oh, but everyone in the rock band has to play an instrument. And it's a rule for these eight-year-olds. Right. And this wow. girl doesn't play an instrument. She can't be in the rock band. That girl was removed from her position in the rock band. The, oh. the Newman's child was was reinserted. So there were there were constant just kind of stories of, about that sort of thing of, of the way the, the Newman's so, sort of used the company. So, for so, so, so Reeves, what's interesting to me hearing you talk about all of this is it some of this clearly is mismanagement, but some of this is 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 like incredible hubris and, and, mm-hmm. and egoism gone, gone amok. Just curious, as you as you dealt with this story, how did you separate one from the other? I mean, I think in or is some it even ways, possible? 
<laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's hard to do that. I mean, I think, I think there was a lot of, I think it's hard to do that because at least when you think about the Newmans, I think, I think when you think about mismanagement, I, I do think I, I've written about a number of, of fast growing startups. I wrote about Uber in kind of the Travis mm -hmm. Kalanick era as they were dealing with some issues. I've written about other, uh, other startups of this era, which is kind of what interested me in finally writing a book about it. And, and I've come to believe that for these companies that, that raise so much money that are just trying to grow so fast, there actually is no way to effectively manage a company like this. If yeah. things are going to go wrong, it is almost part of the business model that you just don't care. And, mm -hmm. and your whole, your whole, <laughs> the whole goal is to just grow as fast as you can. And if that means your employees get burned out along the way, things happen that shouldn't happen. That is just the cost of doing business. And so I think, I think that in, in certain ways played out here, I think the WeWork story is, is a particularly problematic version of these stories when you think about hubris, because I think the other problem these companies run into, besides the fact of it just being impossible to grow this fast, is they suddenly believe that they can do anything. Yeah. And so- yeah, they drank the cooler. Yeah, and, and WeWork, again, they build and operate very cool offices. People like them, they pay money for them. It's a real business. This is not Theranos where the machines never really worked. It, there, <laughs> right. was a real, there was a real business there. But suddenly they were like, well, now we can do apartments. And now we can do a gym. And now we can do school. Well, they had a model, right? They, they could look to Amazon. Sure, and 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 I think it's I I I think that's that's fair, but I I think you know when that's the point everyone everyone points to, but when you when you look at Amazon, you know it was it, it's not like even even ten years into Amazon's existence, it was suddenly they were making movies. You know that's right. that's twenty years into right. its existence, right? And, and it was more of a building blocks approach that actually made sense with each step that they made. Yeah, uh, and I, as, as I, opposed as willy nilly, oh, let's do this, let's do that. Yeah, and I do think it's tricky. I will admit that it's tricky to figure out, you know, what is a what is a proper expansion and and what isn't. But I I do think you'd have to think about like what is your actual, what is it the core thing that you were good at? And I think at WeWork, what they thought they were good at was building community, and and right. they they spent a lot of time doing that and, and, and they did put a lot of effort into it, but it's really, it's, it's just really difficult to do that. And, and so when in reality, what they were good at was building and opening an operating office space. And so, you know, yeah. running a school is a, is just a totally different skill set than, than that and, and doesn't actually feed into everything. So I think that's where they kind of ended up running into trouble. Yeah. So, so as you sort of, went in and you tried to get a better understanding of how we were operated and how the Newmans operated. What was the relationship like between the executives at WeWork, the Newmans, and their communications team? And how did they, how did the communications team maybe interact with you as you were diving in to learn more about their business? I think it was a, a fraught relationship for a long time in, in a lot of ways. I mean, the Newmans were very hands-on in terms of how they wanted their 
public presentation to be of themselves and the company. So this was not a situation where you had the communications team in the corner making a whole plan and the CEO just kind of checks off on it. It was a very sort of hands-on hands -on approach. You know, when I when I first reached out to the company in, in early 2019 to write a story for New York Magazine, they, they brought me in. They were clearly a little wary of of what was going on. They knew I had written fairly critical pieces of, of other startups in the past, but, but ultimately they, they, you know, they, they gave me an interview with Adam. They opened up the doors to, to a few, few of their executives. I did learn that in, in my reporting of that story, that again, Adam was, he, he handpicked every person that I was going to talk to. He, he wanted me to talk to this executive, not that executive. And, and so you know, they, they, they were very hands-on and, and they were very hands-on up to the, the end of, of Adam's tenure there, of the Newman's tenure there in, in directing kind of how the company would respond to everything that was going on with, with the IPO. So, so yeah, I think, and, 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 you know, certainly there were, there were moments when, when the communications team tried to push back on, on certain things and, and the, the Newman's disagreed. There were plenty of other cases when it came to bad news that there was just nothing the comms team could could do about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, any words of advice, or whether it's in-house communicators or PR agencies, and in, in, in as your expectations as a reporter, what you're looking for in terms of access, maybe perceptions on, you know, if you have a CEO that's challenging or highly visible, what should they do in this relationship with a journalist and with a difficult uh, ball of wax? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm biased, but I, I always think that giving access is better than not. You know, if you don't give me access, we're going to write the story and and I'm going to write the story by talking to people that that you don't control. And so and and so you can either have me just do it that way or you can you can have your say. And so you know, I know in in certain situations it's obviously a, a little trickier and people are maybe motivated not to be as open, but but I do think that by and large it's it's in everyone's it's in the company's interest to yeah, I agree. to I agree. to be open. You know, how how do you handle someone like Adam Newman the, the, that's definitely not that's definitely not my that's definitely not my yeah. responsibility that's the yeah. reason I'm on the other ask side the of this ask, I make, ask a, the make a lot less money than the communications team does <laughs> and, and and I'm incentivized to you know look there's there's no, there's sure. certainly truth to I'll say this one of the reasons people wrote a lot about WeWork and wrote a lot favorably about WeWork is because of Adam if he had been a boring kind yeah. of yeah, you know, guy in point. a suit Right. The, the company would not have, I mean, you, you can go back and see articles in Fast Company magazine with the Newmans looking literally like rock stars, like they're in yep. leather jackets. And, and there yeah. is a level, so there is a level at which it's a double-edged sword. You, right. you have to, you know, you, you want to kind of push that and, and embrace it, but then there's, there's going to come a downside. And I, I think for WeWork, it was partly, you know, they they just well uh, yeah there was just there was just too much of the weirdness of him that came out all at once yeah. for for them to to deal with and so, you had access to a lot of different people i mean clearly you, you at least you had a chance to observe if not interview his wife seemingly talk to miguel mckelvey his co-founder even his sister i think was was one of the players you know how did you 
negotiate those kinds of interactions. And ultimately, I, what I'd be interested in too is what kind of insight did you get from rank and file employees and did you have much luck there? Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny, of, of the people you mentioned, I'm not going to go through and say who I did yeah. or didn't talk yeah. to, but most of those people I didn't talk to, I mean, <laughs> wouldn't talk to me. And and I think that the challenge of reporting, and, and I, I'll, I'll say this about those people, I'll, I'll say the people who did talk to me, I think, got their position in here, and 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 I think you know, in some respects, I think probably moved the the impression of them in a, in a favorable direction. So a lot of what my reporting is, is, you know, if, if the CFO won't talk to me, I sure want to talk to junior person in the finance team who, who may not be the one making the decision, but is sitting in the back of the conference room, taking notes on, on everything that's going on. And, and, Often I find when I'm reporting on companies, you want the decision makers, you want the public facing people. Those people are motivated in certain ways to, to put their, their position out there in, in, a, in a particular way. So, but you still, you still obviously want those people, but I, I find a lot of the, report, the, the best reporting that I do comes from more junior people who are just mm -hmm. people who, who happen to be in certain rooms and in certain discussions that, that can be illuminating about the people that you want to write about. Reeves, I'm really struck by this point, given what Mike and I do for a living, by your point about we work losing the narrative, right? When it, when it got yeah. to a point now, so they were, but at a point they were very effective at their narrative, right? Yeah. When they were raising money particularly. And, I, and so I, I, I'd like to, to get your view on it, on how, how was it that, that this guy was able to, to raise all of this money for WeWork? And in, in the review that the Times did, which, I, as I said, was very favorable, they wrote, Billion Dollar Loser, your book, would be absorbing enough were it just about one man's grandiosity. But Weidemann has a larger argument to make about what Newman represents. Newman finagled funding, not only from SoftBank, a fairly respected company, right? The Japanese conglomerate led by billionaire entrepreneur Maya Yoshi-san, who liked to say that feeling is more important than numbers, but also from the venerable venture capital firm Benchmark. So did, did, some, did Newman find a kindred spirit in SoftBank or was he just the persuasive dude? Yeah, I, I mean, part of it is he's he's very persuasive, but but these are not idiots that he was he was right. getting to invest. These were very smart people, and and I think what Adam was very good and what WeWork was very good at communicating was a sense that of disruption and and a sense that they were building a company that he was building a company that was going to be a global giant. Their ambitions were not small. And if their ambitions had been small, smaller, this could have been a nice business and, and would have kept growing and there would be WeWorks everywhere and as there still are, and, 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 and it would have done fine. But what Adam was pushing to all these people was that we are going to, the, the real estate, business globally, it's not even worth putting a number on it because it's so vast, but it's trillions <laughs> right. of dollars. And and he was coming in and saying, we're going to take a big bite out of that. And no one, 
in 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 this era when venture capitalists were were betting on all these tech companies that were coming in and disrupting one industry after another no one had really tried to take as big a swing at the real estate business as what we were was was promising to do and so i think in 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 certain ways this was just this was an era and and i, I i'm i'm not certain whether we're out of this era or not of of people wanting to place bets on companies that were going to become uh, in enter the sort of group of the Facebooks, the Ubers, the Airbnbs, right. the Googles, the Netflixes that were were these giant companies, and and that's sort of what we were promised, and and I think that is is ultimately that's what interested investors, and then I think the story of disruption um, and and doing things differently and the coolness of it was what kind of attracted the media to this story along the way. Yeah, so a lot of it's culture, right? And, and, and as we look at kind of what was created, I'm, I'm sure there was telltale signs of a we work culture, just like there's something of an Uber culture or an, an XYZ corporation culture. Mm-hmm. It was, was the culture itself a creature of Adam or were there other elements of it that led to some of the aspirations? I think, it, it, I, I, you know, it's both simple, too simple, but also I think largely true that, that the culture stemmed from Adam. And, and the thing that people talk about a lot is, and he, he, he was essentially a cult leader and, and you know, a, a relatively benign cult, but, but <laughs> he was someone who that employees looked up to he made people feel that WeWork was changing the world, like quite literally. And, and I think that's a very intoxicating thing for, for employees, um, both for young people coming straight out of college and then talk to a lot of kind of mid-career people who, you know, were coming from kind of boring jobs who came to this company and they were really energized by that notion and by the, the fact that WeWork was doing, doing things differently and, and that there was just a lot of excitement ar- around all that. So, so I think the culture did stem from Adam and, and you know, for, for good and for bad. Yeah. Are there other companies that you look at, you study, and maybe they're still healthy companies, but you kind of say the cultural element is akin or similar? You know, are there are there maybe a better way to say it is are there are there companies that you see out there that seem maybe more driven by the cultural aspects than maybe a business plan? I think that. You know, I, th- I think there are similarities at Uber at the time that I was writing about it. You know, Travis Travis was a very different kind of entrepreneur than, than Adam in a lot of ways, but he was like the employees there just felt, you know, deep affection for him and a, and a deep belief that what Uber was doing was going to change the world in so many ways beyond just being a really good taxi service. And, mm-hmm. and I think that is like the, the belief that a lot of these companies have and that their leaders try to instill in people is that we're gonna take over all these different industries if we just execute and, and do things the right way, as opposed to just focusing on what, what they're doing. So I think, you know, the, the, the idea, the, these entrepreneurs that have these, this vision and this drive to just take over the world in all kinds of ways, I, th- I, think, I think you can see, I mean, I, I, you know, I think that is the one place where where the Elizabeth Holmes yeah. narrative does does mm-hmm. fit, not not in the 
sense that Adam Newman's going to end up in a, in a courthouse one day, but in the sense of the the belief that that Elizabeth Holmes both projected to the to the public and 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 internally. Yeah, and, and what's also interesting is, and we can go back all the way to the 1990s and come forward. In the sense there have been lots of leaders, lots of companies that start off with the notion of disintermediating a business. WeWork's case, mm -hmm. it's commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. You know, Uber's space, it's it, it, it's traditional taxis, and they get in that door. And then they think they can repeat that exercise over and over again. It's to me, it's mm -hmm. fascinating. Changing gears a bit, though, you know, reading reading your book, reading a number of your articles through the years, you're you're a very gifted storyteller, and and I'd love to have you share with our listeners how you approach a story. How do you get kind of the behind the scenes view, and how do you actually go about selecting your topics, what kind of time does it take to develop these kinds of stories, and then finally carry it through to publish? Yeah, you know, I, I have the blessing of having a, a job at New York Magazine that gives me time and, mm -hmm. and you know, by to, to, to work on these stories. And, and I think, you know, usually for me, that means months, you know, three to six months is often kind of how much time I have to, to work on a story about a particular company. And I think, you know the virtue of time is is a lot of times when magazines do profiles of of companies or or newspapers or whoever it might be you know they the the amount of time the reporter has is is a week couple weeks go in interview the ceo interview the people they'll let you go talk to an investor go talk find someone who a talking head who will kind of critique the business so you can sort of be fair and balanced and all that but but you don't really get to dig into it. So, so I have the virtue of saying, of having the time to figure out what's going on. And so I, I start by doing a lot of reading. I read everything I can find that's been written about the company. Often you'll find questions that seem like they've been unanswered, people to go talk to. I always talk to the company first. I, you know, I, I mm -hmm. always tell them like, I'm writing about you. I'd, I'd love to talk to everyone. Sometimes in, in, in WeWork's case, they were, they were pretty, at the beginning, although I'm remembering, I think it, it took about a month between, you know, first reaching out to them and then finally agreeing to, to let me interview Adam. Other companies will be resistant for a while and then I'll say, okay. And then I go off and do my reporting. And then a month or two later, I, I come back to them and say, hey, I've, I've been reporting and I, I'm going to I'm doing this story whether you want it or not. And and then they'll they'll kind of play ball. So but but in terms of reporting, it's it's you know it's talking to as many people who could tell me something interesting about the company as possible, and and that the categories of of those kinds of people are 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 varied. There's obviously employees of the company. Former employees is obviously a great place to go. You you have to be careful because people can be bitter for for all kinds of reasons. But that's that's often. The place to go to find out what's what has really been going on. You know, obviously talking to investors, companies, but but that's a, a biased view. And then, you know, I I often try to go to people who've worked with the company. You know, WeWork is we as in the WeWork example, they have worked with pretty much every landlord in New York City and the right, world. Right. And yeah. and some of them have had great relationships with them, and some of them have had bad. And a lot of them have had interesting meetings with Adam Newman over the years. So. 
So you try to find you try to find whoever it is who who would have interacted with with the people you're writing about and and the company to get as full a picture as you as you can. Yeah, I, you know, Mike, when I hearing Reeve talk about three to six months, I, I always welcomed that kind of opportunity as a you know head of communications or something because you really for these stories you really need context and nuance, mm-hmm. right? For the stories to really understand we. GE was in commercial real estate, of course, at the time of the global financial crisis. And talking about what happened there, you know, you can't, in some platforms, it's impossible to tell a story in eight to 10 paragraphs. So I I welcome that as a a communicator when somebody came in and said they were going to invest time in our story. So it strikes me, Reeves, that we should finish the story here. What happened to what happened to Adam Newman ultimately, and what's he doing today? Sure. Well, in late September, about about two years ago, uh, just about of, of 2019, Adam stepped down as CEO mm. of WeWork, and this came after a, a series of weeks in which just bad news was piling on top of bad news. It was becoming less and less likely that WeWork was going to be able to go public, and and so much, so much of the reasons for that seemed to be tied up in Adam, and there didn't, it didn't feel as if there was a path forward. He had lost the the company's board of directors, which was largely stocked with people who were very supportive of him. That group, you know, essentially said, "We, we think you need to step down." And so, so he resigned. WeWork decided not to go public. Mm-hmm. They delayed their their IPO, and. You know the the company still exists, and we can talk about the company in in a second. But but for Adam, he got out and negotiated himself a a billion plus dollar exit package, which is is one way we came to the title of our it, book. Right? What's that? It's a nice gig if you can get it. Yes, indeed, indeed. That got caught up in in a lot of legal wrangling, but as as far as we know, you know, Adam Adam has gotten the the bulk of that. And he he's largely laid low. Mm-hmm. He would not uh, he would not be interviewed for my book. He has not said anything publicly in in the past two years. And he I think has uh, has has slowly been inching his way back into figuring out what the next act is for him. And he's a guy in his early forties still. He is not someone who is going to take that billion dollars and retire to a different island. Yeah, he he's largely what he's been doing now. He, he has a family investment fund and and is is making investments. Is some in the real estate business, some kind of all over the place. And and I I suspect he's going to continue to do that. I don't know whether or not he has a desire to run a company again. That is certainly I think in many ways his his skill or part of his skill set. And and I I certainly think that if someone wants to to fund an, an Adam Newman venture in the future that he's he's going to have no shortage of backers, frankly, even though everything interesting. is poorly here. Yeah. So interesting. And, and, and what's the tale with uh, WeWork? I mean, where, where are they now? I know that in general, that their, their partner in all of this or one of the places they went to in terms of commercial real estate is has gone soft in many ways because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the not going public was a, was a big problem for WeWork. They needed money to keep growing. They had to lay off. They laid off thousands of employees. They started to close locations. They started to slow their growth. And then the pandemic happened. And and that was even worse. Sudden, suddenly, no one could go to their offices. 
no one wanted to go to their offices. And 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 the WeWork business model is is really predicated on on density. It's on squeezing people into smaller spaces and making them feel <laughs> as if right. it's not quite as small as it is. So they they have tried to position themselves as as we hopefully emerge from the pandemic as as a kind of offering the thing they always offered, which is is flexibility and and telling companies, you know, okay, maybe you don't need your big headquarters or a bunch of different offices that, that you operate. Maybe maybe what you need is is just a place for your employees to go when they want to go to an office or when you mm-hmm. want to have a meeting. And so they're trying to present their sort of flexibility as as a virtue now. And and you know, I I think there's an argument for it, but I as I mentioned, I. The, the business and making the business work depends on density. And, and I just, I think until we get to the other side of, of the pandemic, I think it's going to be tricky. That being said, the company says it is going public again. It has an <laughs> IPO scheduled for October next right. month. They are going public via a SPAC, the, the IPO du jour. And, recommended by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and we'll see we'll see how it goes. I mean, it's yeah. it's a much less exciting company than it was in, in a lot of ways. It's become the company perhaps it should have been, and and you know I I, I would expect that WeWork will survive and mm-hmm. and we'll find a way to adapt. It's not going to go public at forty seven billion dollars. It's not going to go public right. anything close to that. And the ambitions have dimmed, but but the core of of the business is is still probably something people are going to want. So Reeves, last question for you. So what's next for you? Are are there stories you're interested in in telling? Or, you know, there's so many opportunities now with all the streaming platforms to take something like Billion Dollar Loser and make it a a visual property. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking about? Is it you know, while we've been talking, I've been thinking about the story I'm working on now, which is about a company that I won't name who, who so far is not going to let me talk to the, the principals involved. I've, I've asked very nicely multiple times. We've had very polite conversations and they've, they've said no. So that's left me to go off and, and do the thing that I talked about, which is, is reporting and, <laughs> and talk about all the, all the people I'm, I'm writing about. So so it's a very different it's a very different company in a lot of ways, although it's another company with a sort of charismatic and somewhat controversial figure um, at, at the top. And so so that's what I'm working on now. There there is I have no involvement in it, but there is a, a an Apple TV show that I believe just wrapped production in in which Jared Leto plays Adam Newman and Anne Hathaway oh, I didn't plays know that. Rebecca, his wow. wife. So so that will be coming for, for everyone to watch, hopefully after they read the book. Exactly. Well, did you get a credit on this? No, no credit, but in in spirit, I think I I think hopefully it will be acknowledged there. Yeah. Well, this has been a terrific conversation. Really appreciate your time and and, and giving us a peek at how a a reporter really looks and studies companies and, and and really exposes those companies in transparent ways for those of us who our investors, prospective uh, investors and observers. So, so thank you very much. And, 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 and Reeves, thank you as well. By the way, for my students who are listening who are taking my crisis class next semester at Boston University, we're gonna be reading Billion Dollar Loser sort of as our textbook because there are so many crisis management lessons in it. And so you, those of you who've signed up for my class, you might wanna go out and get it now. And, get a head start. So Reeves, thank you again. It's been terrific. 
Thanks, Gary. And I'd, I'd love to come talk to the kids once they get a, oh, get a chance to read it. So. Thank you. Terrific. Great. Thank you very much. Take care, Reeves. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.